Take your copy of the scriptures and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. But before we hear from the Lord, let's go to him once more in prayer. Uh, Pray with me. Our dear Lord, our Heavenly Father, we come again before you asking as your people, let the meditation of our hearts be pleasing indeed in your sight. We confess once again that we do not live by bread alone but by every word that comes forth from your mouth. So we pray, Lord, we ask, give us a great appetite for this, your word, that indeed it may nourish our souls this morning in ways of eternal life, even to your glory. We pray all of this through the bread of heaven, Jesus Christ himself. Amen. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'll be reading verses 1 to 13, so we get the context, the focus of the sermon will be verses 6 to 13, uh, but please now give your full attention, this is the word of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, most of them, with them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So far, the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Well, as we continue this morning in our our, our series through 1 Corinthians, we're in chapter 10. We began this passage actually last week, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We got through verses 1 through around 6 and a half, um, and we saw there that the Holy Spirit in this passage, through Paul, was indeed uh, saying that we belong to the Stone Age. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Belong to the Stone Age. It's something that Paul uh, references a number of times in the New Testament. This is not, of course, referencing to what we usually hear, and we usually hear by that, the Stone Age. But we are in the age, we belong to the age of the chief cornerstone. right? Indeed, the age of the rock. Jesus Christ, the rock identified here for us in this passage as Jesus 
himself. And this is the age that with, to which we, God's people, belong. The age of the rock. We belong to that age to come. This is something that we see again and again in Paul, uh, in, in Corinthians, even from chapter 1 all the way through. We saw that the Holy Spirit, uh, we saw that he made that point by encouraging confidence in these Corinthian believers, confidence in their, to their connection with, their belonging to uh, believers in the Old Testament, remember in verses 1 to 4. And then we saw this issuing of, of caution against carelessness uh, in, in verses 5 to 11, and that's the part where we're in this morning. And we pick up at verse 6 here uh, where we left off. Again, listen to verse 6 from the Apostle Paul. He says, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Right? Who's the they? Again, he's referring, if we look back to our fathers, right, who all passed through the cloud and the sea. And some of them, right, just like the Israelites, just like Israel, some of the Corinthians were grumbling and they were complaining. Paganism and practices related to paganism culturally really were nearly impossible to avoid in that culture. Everything had to do and was interlaced with and under, undergirded with paganism, paganism. Uh, and navigating their way, the Corinthians, navigating their way in relation to those practices and those cultural connections was very difficult for them. And so they're grumbling. And this grumbling came against the prohibition that Paul was calling for. And the history that Paul gives them in this section, the things to which he references from the history of Israel, they prefigure the realities that have come and they have begun to shine forth in the new age, this new messianic age. God did all these things. He walked them through these things during Israel's time in the wilderness. And God did this what? To establish his purpose and to make certain that that purpose, that will, that it will be accomplished. And so that redemptive history would come to its end, right? It's telos, it would come to its goal, its end, which is the coming of the Messiah to usher in that new age. And so all of this happened, right? All of this happened to keep them from making peace with idolatry, right? From setting their hearts on wickedness and on idolatry and on false gods in the worship of false gods. Paul reminds the Corinthians to alert them of the danger of making peace with idols, making peace with idols, with idolatry, because this is something that some of them were doing in Corinth. And we see here a very strong assertion, a very strong uh, declaration that profession of faith in Jesus Christ and paganism cannot go together. They cannot go together. Profession and paganism are at odds with one another. And therefore Paul goes on to give them what? He gives them four examples, right? That word example we mentioned last week is the word type. He gives them four types for them, for their instruction. Four examples from history where Israel... The church's forefathers, remember, where they did this very thing. And so look again at verse 7 where he says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. Right, And so this is the first type that he gives, the first example he gives for their instruction. This instance that we read in our Old Testament reading from Exodus, this incident with the golden calf. And I'll refer you there once again, verse 32. 
Listen again to what happened, this horrifying reality uh, for the people of God. It says, when the people of God, this is Exodus 32, when the people of God saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered together themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought up us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know where he, what has become of him. And so Aaron, it says, said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. And so all the people of Israel uh, took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Right? And then listen to what it says. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. An altar made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. You see that? Capital L-O-R-D. Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh, this golden calf. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Right? Notice what's going on there, the eating and the drinking. Right? It's parallel with festivals in Corinth. Right? Paul's making this connection. And notice, too, what follows this eating and this drinking, this festival. It's followed by orgy. It's followed by sexual debauchery and immorality. Right? You see this in Corinth, and we see this in Sinai, at Sinai. Israel had, in a very real way, committed adultery on their wedding night by doing this. It should be horrifying as we hear this, this incident with the golden calf. Corinth, similarly, after they're saved by the Lord, engage in this behavior. And they flirt with continuing with this behavior. Both of them are making peace with idolatry. Indeed, they're making love with idolatry. Remember Paul's condemnation. It wasn't merely, it wasn't simply against eating and drinking, eating meat and drinking. It was the connection with all of that with idolatry that was the issue. And so this type, this example of Israel serves as an important role and it should be considered very carefully. The Corinthians need to learn from Israel. Their fathers, remember, who participated in God's great redemptive act. And they still fell into pagan idolatry. And God's judgment did and will fall upon those who unrepentantly continue to do so. And so we go on to verse 8, and we have the second type, the second example that Paul gives. And he says, We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Again, we have similarly, uh, once more, repeated this warning against sexual immorality. This is a big problem in the congregation. And in their culture, right? We talked about this. Corinth was full of temples and it was full of temple prostitutes and all the debauchery that would, engage, that, would, that would be engaged in in these temples. And Paul refers to Numbers, right? This is a reference to Numbers chapter 25. Numbers 25 verses 1 uh, to 3 and then I'll read verse 9. Where it says, While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. 
right? Israel began to do this with the daughters of Moab. The, uh, Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. And so Israel yoked himself to Baal, uh, Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And it goes on to discuss what happened. In verse 9 it says, those who died by the plague were 24,000. Right? Judgment came after the whoring, after these false gods. Right? This is a big problem. And we see this, uh, this, this again, the sexual immorality. And the Moabite women, right? This relations with them was forbidden. And that led to what? To the worship of Moabite god, Baal. And this led to the judgment of God. It fell upon them. And so Paul uses this type, this example, and he warns the Corinthians of the urgency and the necessity to stay away from engaging in this sexual immorality, which itself is a sin, but also because of the close connection that we see time and again with sexual immorality and idolatry. It was an issue with Israel way back then. It was an issue in Corinth way back then. And it is an issue in our culture today. The Lord commands what in this regard? Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from it. God's will is what? 1 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians 4. Your holiness, your sanctification. This is his will for you. And this behavior that's prohibited. In all this discussion, the sexual sin, sexual idolatrous nature, it is soul-deadening. It is soul-destroying. It degrades the spirit. It numbs the soul. We are rather to what? We are to flee to Christ our Savior. To flee to Him for safety and protection and strength. And then we see Paul brings up this third type, this third example in verse 9 where he says, We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Right, here we have a wider point that Paul is making, a wider, broader point, and the reference there is to Numbers chapter 21, uh, Numbers 21. And this type is the account of Israel grumbling once again, uh, Numbers 21, and I'll just read verses 5 and 6 right there, grumbling against Moses, and they're grumbling against the Lord. And what is the complaint? Why are, what are they complaining about? Incredibly. They're, incre- they're, they're complaining about manna. The bread of heaven. Right? Listen to what it says. Numbers 21, 5 and 6. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food. And then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Right? The bread of heaven they loathed. Right? They said we have no food. But it's a lie because they just said we have manna. Right? We have no food. They have food. They just didn't want it. They didn't appreciate it. They called it worthless. And they are discontent with God's provision for them. His divine, holy, glorious provision. And they're complaining about God's feeding them, about God's way, about his sustaining life for them. And in this, they did what, Paul says? 
They tested. They tempted Christ. They put Christ to the test. And how so? How is this putting Christ to the test? It's by pushing and pushing and seeing just how far one can go before God's wrath and his judgment come. They're testing and testing and they're grumbling. Paul says it's futile. It's futile. Look at history. Look at this type. Look at this example for you, Corinthians. And he says we, Paul says we must not put Christ to the test in this. And notice how he switches the pronoun there. It's not you, right? He includes himself. We must not put Christ to the test, the apostle says. The pagan practices, food and drink, making peace with idolatry. It is out of bounds for you, Corinthians. It is out of bounds, dear Christian, for us even today. We aren't to look at where the line that we can't cross is in order that we can get as close as possible to it. Right? It's not what we're to do. We're to run from the line. Stay away from the line. See how they were judged by God. Israel. And you too, Corinthians. And we too. Here in Fort Wayne, we need to be extremely careful about our own lives and our conduct. We had a fruitful discussion about this in our Friday night Bible study group. It was a... a, very fruitful discussion. We talked about this and we, 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 we talked about one thing is for certain. right? We very often are far too often worrying about other people's sins. Other people's sins. And why is that? We have enough sin remaining in our own lives to keep us busy and to work on mortifying than to worry about other people's sins. We must be killing our own sin. And we should point out as well, and this is very important, uh, that when we come to texts like these, when we come to passages in the Bible uh, like the one we were at this morning, um, we shouldn't see prohibitions like this from God as God's way of sucking the joy out of our lives. Right? Sometimes that's the way that we reflexively in our sin nature might see uh, these restrictions or prohibitions from God. They're not Him trying to suck the joy from our life. God is not a, a dementor that sucks the happiness from our lives, right? I'm not sure if I got that illustration right, but I am sure someone will correct me uh, if I did or did not. Uh, but you get the point, right? God, God is not there to, to t- take the, the life out of our, uh, the joy out of our lives. Your Heavenly Father doesn't sit around thinking how to suck the joy from your lives. Rather, God, what? What does He do? What is the testimony of Scripture? He works all things for your good. And for his glory. He works all things for your protection. Against what? Against sin. Against Satan. Against yourself. He works all things for your protection against the world. And against hurting yourself. And we know this from other places in scripture as well. right? You fathers know this. You wouldn't give your children a stone if they ask for bread. Remember we read in Matthew talks about this. And it says if you then fathers who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? He loves His children. Are you His children this morning? You belong to Jesus Christ. Have you bowed the knee to the Redeemer, the only Savior of souls, the only Redeemer in this life or the next? If you are, He loves you. You are His children. 
You're children of the Father, children of the King. And he saved you. We are his. And the allegiance that he demands is absolute. It is absolute. No partial commitments. He doesn't want part of you. He wants all of you. He demands all of your heart, body, mind, soul, strength. And that's just another way of saying, in toto, in all of you. He wants all of you. And if he has you, you are his, and he is yours. Praise God. In verse 10, he goes on, Paul, uh, in his discussion, and he mentions this fourth type, this fourth example. Um, we see this in verse 10. Uh, and there we read, of, we read the word grumble, right? Look at that word grumble, something we see again and again. The word grumble, that is indeed the descriptor for Israel in the Old Testament. They grumbled, they were grumblers, right? They were grumbling. And Paul tells the Corinthians directly, he uses this word and he connects them to the Corinthians and he says in verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer, right? And the connection there is clear, connection in redemptive history. When when the Israelites, they grumbled, they grumbled, yes, after God had delivered them from the house of bondage, when he delivered them from slavery in Egypt, from the iron furnace The Old Testament refers to Israel after that. And yes, after providing for all of their needs through the exodus, through the wilderness, each time they grumbled and God's judgment fell upon them. And this is a heinous and a wicked sin. And it's not just you young people that need to realize this. Us older people need to realize this as well. This is a heinous and wicked sin, grumbling, It is not, young people, just a noise that is made, right? Not just a noise. I remember when I was younger, my parents were uh, eternally irritated at me when they would say something and I would go, "Ah," you know, it's the the, the noises of a teenager, right? How much more so the grumbling, right? The grumbling of the people of God who've gone through all of what they've gone through, the redemptive acts of God. It's not just a noise. It's a reflection of the heart. It reflects the status of the heart, it, it's an exp- it reflects, it is an expression of ingratitude. And that's a wicked thing. Grumbling, ingratitude. Ingratitude is a heinous thing. It is a root-based core sin, especially for believers. Because when we are brought from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, our grumbling should give way to gratitude. Gratitude. Who are you? Saved by the Lord, plucked from the fire, from sure damnation. We grumble? Incredible. And that spirit-wrought gratitude is to drive our lives. Right? Remember, see who you are, be who you are. Gratitude. And Paul's reference in verse 10 is to number 16. Number 16 is that instance, we won't go there, you can read it perhaps later this Lord's Day, but it's that instance known as Korah's Rebellion. Korah's Rebellion. And it's that time when they had assembled together and they rose up together against Moses and against Aaron and they grumbled against them. They grumbled against God. And the judgment of God came and the earth opened up and it swallowed them and it closed back up again. Grumbling and judgment. These are four examples Paul gives in this small passage, brief passage. 
Four examples, four types for the Corinthians. Four types indeed for us. The Holy Spirit saw that this was written down and scripturated and preserved for us, that it's an inspired text for us, brothers and sisters. These four examples that grumbling brings judgment. And then in verse 11, it gives us a wonderful and a helpful, helpful instruction regarding how we are to see our Bibles and how we're to approach our Bibles, how we're to read and understand them. Right? Indeed, uh, the technical word hermeneutic, right? hermeneutics, how we're to, to, to draw from this and how we're to see it and approach it. Or you ever wonder how we're, we're to read the Old Testament today, how we're supposed to view the Old Testament? It's a question a lot of people have. A lot of people have wrong answers for that. But verses like verse 11 here helps us in this. And it tells us why these things happened and why God sought to inscripturate them, to write them down. Why the Holy Spirit inspired these events in redemptive history to be taken down. And it also tells us one factor in how we are to read redemptive history. Right Again, verse 11. Now these things happen to them as an example. The type, right again. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages has come. Right? They were happened as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. Right? And this is the close of that bracket, right? that inclusio. Remember in verse 6, it spoke of the example, the type. And then it gives them, and then it closes this section, referencing the type again, the example. It's the close there. Start in 6, ends in 11. Example, tupos, type, right? And notice that last part of verse 11. On whom the ends of the ages have come. Right? Curious uh, reference there. We see Paul here as his standard practice. As we have become familiar, as you become more familiar uh, with the New Testament, there is a two-age structure to all of it. A two-age scheme, and we can see it like this. In Christ's first advent, when he came, he brought the end of the ages, right? Again, the telos, the goal of what's gone before. And he brought that to conclusion, to fulfillment. And in his second advent, he will be, will be the consummation of everything that's been promised, but not yet fully realized. And the point is that the ages hinge on Jesus, our Savior. Right? He is the hinge upon which all of this turn. Jesus is the Lord of history. And then verse 12 says this, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Right? And we see here this reference again. There's a grumbling. There's pride. Right? Paul addresses here their sin of pride. And the spectacles or lenses for them were, was the present evil age, not the age to come. And so it stirred up their pride. They were proud, even as Israel had been proud. And they'd been judged. The Corinthians had been warned, take heed, there's no place for pride. And then in verse 13, Paul instills comfort when under these tensions, when under these stresses, when under these struggles, when faced with temptations, Paul says what? He gives comfort, he instills comfort. And he says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with temptation will also provide the way of escape 
that you may be able to endure it. Right? A glorious encouragement, a, go- a glorious comfort through our temptations, a, dr- a true declaration that we disbelieve and we doubt so much. Right? It's a glorious promise from Scripture. Instills comfort. And what's the point there? They're not un- undergoing unique trials. Right? The stuff that they went through, the stuff that we go through, have been and are common to man. Right? And that should be encouraging to us. And we, having chosen a side in the spiritual warfare that rages, we should not be surprised when temptations come. And we'll encounter the temptation to pull, and the pull to go back, the draw to go back to our pagan past. Just like the Israel's attempt to go back, to go back to Israel and the leeks and the onions and the slavery and the bondage. But praise God. Praise God. What does it say next in verse 13? This glorious clause, this glorious phrase to meditate upon and to live our life following this, right? Verse 13, no temptation has overtake you that does not come into man. And then he says this, God is faithful. God is faithful. Even when we're faithless, God is faithful. That's a wonderful encouragement, dear Christian, is it not? It's a wonderful promise. God is faithful. You may be considering, as you're thinking through all these things and listening to what's going on in the text, hearing these types, examples from Old Testament, apply to the Corinthians, even for us today, You may be considering a problem as you take this all in, these types and identifiers and warnings. I know that I did when I reflected upon this passage. And the problem that I pondered and struggled with and I lamented over in my own heart and mind is that I know that I am not to make peace with idolatry. I know that I'm not to make peace with sin. I know that I'm to wage war against those things. Right? We are to wage war against idolatry. We are to make war, not love, right? to flip a common term in regard to idolatry and sin. We're to make war, not love. And now knowing these things and thinking through these things, I find myself realizing I, that, that I often find myself at peace with my sin. I find myself at peace with my idols. And probably you do too. You probably, like me, you do grumble. You do murmur against the Lord and against his command and against his law. You know God's will for your life. It's not a secret. Your holiness, your sanctification. And we want that, truly. But we're not that. And that can be crushing. I want to be holy and sanctified, but what am I? I am utterly foul and black with sin. As I meditate and I realize the sin in my own heart. And I'm so far from holy. That's my guilt. And it can be crippling. And you may think this as well. You may struggle with this, these realities. But I must remember, and you must remember, dear Christian, you must remember that we are the ones upon whom the end 
of the ages have come. The final age has dawned, brothers and sisters. The kingdom has come, and we know this because the king has come. And we can never allow ourselves to forget that when we have conflict between what we believe and what God says, when that happens, he gets the win. He gets the win, and you need to trust him, and I need to trust him. And we struggle in our battles against sin. Correct? We struggle in that fight. We need to remember the Prince of Peace has won the war against your sin. He has won the war. You long for holiness and you are devastated by your dirtiness. The spotless Lamb of God, the pure spotless Lamb of God, Jesus, has declared you perfect in Him. He's declared you perfect in Him and He is making you holy. And it is that Savior, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ, who carries you through this life. And He has conquered all of His and your enemies. Even your own heart, He has conquered to Himself. God is faithful, says in verse 13. Therefore, we can be confident. We can be confident, not counting on our own stupid and weakly ways. Sanctification is what? It is a work of God working in you. You're more and more die to sin and live to righteousness as he strengthens you. And you avail yourself to the means of grace. And the Spirit works through you, his power and his presence in you. It's his promise to you. Verse 13, God is faithful. He is powerful. He is gracious. He protects. He provides. We need to know. We need to trust that we are not drowned in. We are not crushed by temptation to sin. We are not helpless. The shackles of of sin have been broken from you, brothers and sisters. The claws of sin and addiction have been removed from you. You're free. We need to know and trust that. And that the Holy Spirit's power and presence are truly yours. You belong to Jesus. This is true of you. We are no longer slaves. And also, what goes along with this verse, verse 13, we are no longer slaves, right? No temptation has come. There's not common demand. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it, right? What is he saying? The corollary to this. You are without excuse, right? The way is there. He'll provide it. Very often we think little of our sin and its heinousness before God, right? Because it's natural for us, but it's not natural for us. If you belong to Jesus, it is no longer natural for you. May we believe, brothers and sisters, what is true of us. And may we never fear our sin more than we trust our Savior. Avail yourself to Jesus. Avail yourself to the means of grace. Brothers and sisters, let us go in hope and in trust that Jesus has overcome the world. And that he's overcome our hearts. And that as he is greater than our heart is the declaration of Scripture. Let us go also in the joy and delight that he has poured his love. Romans 5, 5, he has poured his love 
into our hearts through the Spirit, to our very hearts. And may that love, brothers and sisters, as you go forth back into the world, the dead and dying world in such need of the Savior, need of the gospel, may you go back and may, you, may the, that love that you've received that's been poured into your heart shine bright throughout this week in this world that is in so in need of that love and so in need of the only Savior for life, in this life or the next. Amen. Let's pray.